The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. And Magovanin and Suilaid to all my elf friends. I am Tani Tinuviel, the resident KUCI Middle Earth Elf. And coming up in just a few moments, what would Arwen do? This is KUCI in Irvine, the best radio station in the history of Middle Earth. from the award-winning soundtrack of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. I am Tani Tinuviel. Greetings and suilaid to all my elf friends this morning. I hope you are having a lovely, lovely day. It is Friday, and this is What Would Arwen Do? On every other Friday morning, alternating weeks with Phenomenal Woman here on KUCI in Irvine Broadcasting from the University of California at Irvine. And we are also streaming live on the Internet 24 hours a day at KUCI.org. So I hope you'll check out our website for information about ticket giveaways, all of our great music. We are an independent radio station. So here we play music that you will not hear on the major airwaves. And we also have very interesting and fun um, and informative public affairs programming. And you can check out our public affairs programs and listen to podcasts through our public affairs website at KUCITalk.org. So in case you are tuning in for the first time this morning, <clears throat> uh, you may be wondering what in the world is this show all about? This is the show where we ask, I ask, if a Middle Earth elf lived today in Orange County, California, what might her life look like? How would she celebrate and support the arts, music, her community, and the preservation of Earth, its beauty, resources, and creatures? Some people ask, what would Jesus do? Well, I like to ask, what would Arwen do? And in case you're not familiar with who Arwen was, Arwen was an elf princess, the daughter of Elrond, a prince among elves and lord of Rivendell, a magical place of healing lore and wisdom, perhaps not unlike the community here at UC Irvine. Arwen was also a beloved daughter of the universe, as are all the women of this fair celestial home called Earth, or in elvish Arda. And I believe that Arwen understood the principle of noblesse oblige, that with great privilege comes responsibility. She embodied the archetype of a true princess of the light through her courage, wisdom, beauty, her sense of humor, and service to others. So Arwen has been a a guiding archetype for me for many years, and going now on my uh, seventh year of my adventure of my life as an elf. And in Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, A Guide to Middle-Earth, Colin Durias wrote, In his invented mythology of Middle-Earth, Tolkien intended that his elves were an extended metaphor of a key aspect of human nature. This, quote, elven quality in human life 
was a central preoccupation of Tolkien's. Elves, like dwarves, hobbits, and the like, partially re represent human beings. In Tolkien's mythology, elves represent what is high and noble in humans. In particular, they represent the arts in their highest form, work done in the image of God and his created world. So, I believe this, quote, elven quality exists today in every person and yearns for expression through gifts of creativity, nobility, and service to others. And <clears throat> I am so excited. Uh, the show's been on now for over a little over four years. And now I have a wonderful co Hobbit co-host, Milo Loamsdown. Good morning, Milo. Tani, good morning and happy holidays. And I mean that literally because today is, as everyone knows, one week before Christmas. Mm. Exactly one week from today is Christmas. Today is the last full day of Hanukkah uh -huh. in the Jewish religion. Uh -huh. And guess what? Today is also the Happy New Year. It's the New Year for Muslims around the world, December 18th this year. How wonderful. So many wonderful things to celebrate <clears throat> and I'm excited um, this morning. There were so many, uh, so many things we could do on the show. Um, so such a rich, um, vast amount of things to to um, to pull from. But uh, we wanted to explore kind of some of the spiritual aspect of the writings of J.R. Tolkien, his dear friend C.S. Lewis, who was um, so instrumental. Um, I mean, J.R. Tolkien was so instrumental in C.S. Lewis coming uh, to conversion to the, the Christian faith and um, became such an, an advocate for, for God and for the, the love of God. And so this morning, um, we're going to share a few things. We have, we have some wonderful gifts, I think, to share with people through the, the writings of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. That's absolutely true, as well as maybe towards the end of the show, uh, our listeners will be blessed with the gift of song from you and me. <laughs> we do. We have some Tolkien-themed Christmas carols, and I am not a trained singer in any fashion, uh, but it will hopefully it will be great fun. It will be fun, and certainly you will not hear this anywhere except here <laughs> on KUCI-FM, the voice of the University of California at Irvine. Streaming live 24 by 7 at KUCI.org. And you can hear our podcast later on iTunes. Oh, Just right. search for Arwen or at KUCITalk.org. And that's Arwen, A-R-W-E-N. Also, if you'd like to contact us, you can uh, send us an email at askanelf, A-S-K-A-N-E-L-F, askanelf at yahoo.com. And we would love to hear from some of our friends. And lest we um, get off into this wonderful, just exploring this world with, with Tolkien and J.R. Uh, and C.S. Lewis, um, I'd like to first uh, say hello to all of our friends who are listening both uh, here uh, and locally in Orange County, but also through the Internet, especially my friends, dear, dear community of friends on Tolkien Online, theonering.com, one of the communities of love and uh, faith that I am so grateful for. And I also I want to say a special hello to a very special friend this morning, Orem, who's listening, uh, I think, from here some t someplace in Newport Beach. And did you want to say a special hello to anyone? Well, I want to say a special hello to, of course, my wife, Nora, as well as my dear nieces and nephews all over the place. And also a hello to our listeners after the fact, the yeah. ones that are listening to this via podcast 
Yes, absolutely. So, um, well, it's always good to start with some music. I agree. (laughs) And one of the things that I am so grateful for as such a wonderful gift in in my life, and I believe to to so many, is the incredible music that um, Howard Shore composed for the movies of the Lord of the Rings, I, I have to say I'm uh, I'm I'm a real musical person. So a lot of times the music is what really engages me in in a movie. And I was just I was so in love when the um, after you know I saw the first movie and then when the second movie was coming out. As much as I was looking forward to uh, Peter, what Peter Jackson uh, and all the crew were going to um, gift us with in that movie, I was I was so in anticipation also of the beautiful music that Howard Shore would continue to compose for in the trilogy. So this morning I thought we would play something from the complete recordings. Um, oh goody. <laughs> Oh, goody. And since, uh, to, um, of course, you know, J.R. Tolkien was a great lover of hobbits, and the music that Howard Shore composed for the Shire is just so incredible. I thought I would play from The Fellowship of the Ring, the complete recordings, uh, the Shire and Bag End, and uh, then we'll transition into sharing um, some of the work. Uh, what, what is the poem that we are sharing this morning? Well, the poem is sometimes known as mythopoeia, uh, sometimes known as philomythos to misomythos. Philomythos being J.R.R. Tolkien, lover of myth to hater of myth. (laughs) Yes, misomythos being uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, who was sort of against myth, and as we'll discover in our readings... Uh, thought they were lies. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, he had a, a baptism of uh, not only of his um, imagination, but I believe of his, his intellect and his heart. So <clears throat> this is um, the music from the Lord of the Rings, the complete recordings, the Fellowship of the Ring, um, Howard Shore with the Shire. This is KUCI in Irvine. And that music from The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Complete Recordings. And that was the voice of Ian McKellen there as Gandalf singing the walking song. And uh, if you'd like to hear more of that, you may certainly, you might want to think about picking up the uh, complete recordings. They are absolutely delightful. So here we are, uh, and uh, this morning our... um, our Christmas gift, <laughs> Milo, is to share this uh, incredible poem that was uh, that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote with C.S. Lewis in mind. And you are going to read something to uh, that just a little background about that, right? What is this from? This is from the Inklings by Humphrey Carpenter. Uh, the Inklings was a group of Oxford teachers. They're called Dons in the early part of the 20th century, in the uh, late 20s and early 1930s. Owen Barfield was one. Uh, Charles Williams was one. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, the most famous of them. On September 19, 1931, Lewis invited two of these friends to dine with him in Maudlin College at Oxford. Uh, one was T- Tolkien, the other one Hugo Dyson. And I'm going to start reading from this 
which is relevant to our poem that we're about to read. Owen Barfield had shown Lewis the crucial role that mythology had played in the history of language and literature, but he still did not believe in the myths that delighted him. Beautiful and moving though such stories might be, they were, Lewis said, ultimately untrue. As he expressed it to Tolkien, myths are, quote, lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver, end quote. No, said Tolkien, they are not lies. Just then, Lewis afterwards recalled, there was a rush of wind that came so suddenly on the still warm evening and sent so many leaves pattering down that we thought it was raining. We held our breath. When Tolkien resumed, Tolkien took his argument from the very thing that they were watching. Tolkien said, quote, You look at trees and call them trees, and probably you do not think twice about the word. You call a star a star and think nothing more of it. But you must remember that these words, tree, star, were, in their original forms, names given to these objects by people with very different views from yours. To you, a tree is simply a vegetable organism, and a star simply a ball of inanimate matter moving along a mathematical course. But the first men to talk of trees and stars saw things very differently. To them the world was alive with mythological beings. They saw the stars as living silver, bursting into flame in answer to the eternal music. They saw the sky as a jeweled tent, and the earth as the womb whence all living things have come. To them the whole of creation was myth-woven and elf-patterned. Mm, elf. And Lewis afterwards said that this day, September 19, 1931, was the date of his true conversion to Christianity. Mm. I, uh, I'd like to share something, too, before we get into the poem, that uh, from uh, the Tolkien reader, and this is from J.R.R. Tolkien's um, essay uh, on fairy stories, stories, which really is a defense of um, fairy stories for adults, uh, not as just being, you know, just something that to entertain children. Um, but I think, and if you, it, it is just one of the most profound and to me beloved pieces of literature in the world, this, uh, this um, essay on fairy stories. But I want to read a little bit about what he talks about, the, the Gospels here, from uh, this essay. He says, The Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiar, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical, in their perfect, self-contained significance. And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. But this story has, this story, he's talking about the Gospels, this story has entered history and the primary world. The desire and aspiration of sub-creation has been raised to the fulfillment of creation. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is a eucatastrophe of the story of the Incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. It has preeminently the, quote, inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. For the art of it has the supremely convincing tone of primary art, that is, of creation. To reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath. He goes on to say, the Christian joy, the Gloria, is of the same kind, but it is preeminently, 
infinitely if our, compa- if our capacity were not finite, high and joyous. This, is, this story is supreme and it is true. Art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. Oh, that is just a marvelous, marvelous phrase. I, I haven't read it in 30 years, and that brings back memories of reverberations. Mm-hmm. And that is, I see, we see that so much in, in J.R.R. Tolkien's work. There's um, the, the, the hope, you know, <laughs> the, you know, with Frodo and the, and the company uh, and this, this incredible task that they have taken on uh, to undo the ring um, and to preserve freedom in uh, the free lands and, uh, and so many things to overcome. And yet we see that it ends in joy. Yes, it um, does. And really Frodo, when you think of Frodo, he is the type of the Joseph Campbell hero mm-hmm. in Joseph Campbell's uh, books on the nature of myth and the nature of the hero role in myth. Absolutely. And so to an extent, Frodo is, uh, is similar to Jesus as a small sort of weak character that decides to take on the burdens of the world and is ultimately successful through sacrifice and, and thinking of others first, mm-hmm. which Absolutely. is the true spirit of Christmas. Absolutely. And a joyous one. <clears throat> so let us begin this beautiful gift. Um, and it, it starts out here um, with the dedication. And I'm trying to think, should we have some, should we try some Celtic background music? Let's try a little music? bit of Celtic background music. Okay, Certainly Tolkien was an expert in that yes. kind of language. Yes. Let's, okay. So let's get a little, um, we've got a little music here from the Baroque folk. So let's see if we can have this be here in the background. Oh, wait a minute. There we go. (laughs) This will work. Okay, so it's a dedication here. It says, to one, C.S. Lewis, who said that myths were lies and therefore worthless, even though, quote, breathed through silver. So this is philo mythos to miso mythos. You look at trees and label them just so, for trees are trees, and growing is to grow. You walk the earth and tread with solemn pace one of the many minor globes of space. A star's a star, some matter in a ball, compelled to courses mathematical. Amid the regimented cold inane, where destined atoms are each moment slain. At bidding of a will, to which we bend, and must, but only dimly apprehend, great processes march on, as time unrolls from dark beginnings to uncertain goals, and as on page or written without clue, with script and limbing packed of various hue, an endless multitude of forms appear, some grim, some frail, some beautiful, some queer, each alien, except as kin from one remote origo, gnat, man, stone, and sun. God made the pitreous rocks and arboreal trees, tellurian earth and stellar stars, and these homununcular men who walk upon the ground with nerves that tingle touched by light and sound. The movements of the sea, the wind and boughs, green grass, the large slow oddity of cows, thunder and lightning, birds that wheel and cry, slime crawling up from mud to live and die. These each are duly registered and print 
the brain's contortions with a separate dint. Yet trees are not trees, until so named and seen, and never were so named, tiffy those had been, whose speeches involuted breath unfurled, faint echo and dim picture of the world, but neither record nor a photograph, being divination, judgment, and a laugh, response of those that felt a stir within, by deep monition movements that were kin to life and death of trees, of beasts, of stars, free captives undermining shadowy bars, digging the foreknown from experience, and panning the vein of spirit out of sense. Great powers they slowly brought out of themselves, and looking backward they beheld the elves that wrought on cunning forges in the mind, and light and dark on secret looms entwined. He sees no stars who does not see them first, of living silver made that sudden burst, to flame like flowers beneath an ancient song, whose very echo after music long has since pursued. There is no firmament, only a void, unless a jeweled tent, myth-woven and elf-patterned, and no earth unless the mother's womb whence all have birth. The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise, and still recalls him. Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost, nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rag rags of lordship once he owned. His world dominion, by creative act, not his to worship the great artifact. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light, through whom is splintered from a single white, to many hues and endlessly combined, in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblets, though we dared to build gods and their houses out of dark and light, and sowed the seeds of dragons, t'was our right, used or misused. The right has not decayed, we still make by the law in which we're made. Yes, wish-fulfillment dreams we spin to cheat our timid hearts and ugly fact defeat. Whence came the wish and whence the power to dream of some things fair and others ugly deem? All wishes are not idle nor in vain. Fulfillment we devise, for pain is pain, not for itself to be desired but ill, or else to strive or to subdue the will. Alike were graceless, and of evil this alone is deadly certain. Evil is. Blessed are the timid hearts that evil hate, that quail in its shadow, and yet shut the gate, that seek no parley, and in guarded room, though small and bait, upon a clumsy loom, weave tissues gilded by the far-off day, hoped and believed in under shadow's sway. Blessed are the men of Noah's race, that build their little arks, though frail and poorly filled, and steer through winds contrary towards a wraith, a rumor of a harbor guessed by faith. Blessed are the legend-makers with their rhyme of things not found within recorded time. It is not they that have forgot the night, or bid us flee to organized delight in lotus isles of economic bliss for swearing souls to gain a Circe kiss, and counterfeit at that machine-produced bogus seduction of the twice-seduced. 
Such isles they saw afar, and ones more fair, and those that hear them yet may yet beware. They have seen death and ultimate defeat, and yet they would not in despair retreat. But oft to victory have turned the lyre and kindled hearts with legendary fire, illuminating now and dark hath been with light of suns as yet by no man seen. I would that I might with the minstrel sing and stir the unseen with a throbbing string. I would be with the mariners of the deep that cut their slender planks on mountains steep and voyage upon a vague and wandering quest for some have passed beyond the fabled west. I would with the beleaguered fools be told that keep an inner fastness where their gold, impure and scanty, yet they loyally bring to mint in image blurred of distant king, or in fantastic banners weave the sheen heraldic emblems of a lord unseen. I will not walk with your progressive apes, erect and sapient, before them gapes the dark abyss to which their progress tends, if by God's mercy progress ever ends, and does not ceaselessly revolve the same unfruitful course with a changing of a name. I will not treat your dusty path and flat, denoting this and that by this and that, your world immutable wherein no part the little maker has with maker's art. I bow not yet before the iron crown, nor cast my own small golden scepter down. In paradise, perchance, the eye may stray from gazing upon everlasting day to see the day illumined and renew from mirrored truth the likeness of the true. Then looking on the blessed land, twill see that all is as it is and yet made free. Salvation changes not nor yet destroys garden or gardener, children nor their toys. Evil it will not see, for evil lies not in God's picture, but in crooked eyes, not in the source, but in malicious choice, not in sound, but in the tuneless voice. In paradise they look no more awry, and though they make anew, they make no lie. Be sure they still will make not being dead, and poets shall have flames upon their head, and harps whereon their faultless ling fingers fall. There each shall choose forever from the all. And it's so beautiful. The words are so beautiful, but I urge our listeners to look up, um, to really look at the poem uh, Philomythos to Misomythos, because... Tolkien uses typography so well. He capitalizes the word true, mm -hmm. right? Like we capitalize the word God. Mm -hmm. uh, just uh, tremendous. And the final word, the final words, there each shall choose forever from the all. The word all is capitalized. Mm -hmm. And there are so many just little gems to contemplate within this poem. It is no surprise to me that... Um, God would use this uh, this poem to stir the heart of C.S. Lewis. One of my favorite um, lines here that talks about man is where this part where he says, The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise and still recalls him. He, it says, Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. 
Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. It's 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 got such incredible he I think J.R.R. Tolkien held God in such high regard, but also man as a co-creator with God of things great and beautiful, especially in uh, in the art and in literature. That's right. And, of course, Lewis himself. Lewis himself was a major creator of two distinct and very tremendous mythologies, the three books in the Paralandra series, mm-hmm. Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, beautiful and that hideous strength which is the thunderclap finale of that trilogy and then of course narnia the seven books of narnia um just tremendous tremendous. yes in fact uh with that because we um read something from C.S. Lewis, I was uh, looking at some of this morning, and I wasn't going to share this, but I, I would like to share this because to me this is such a beautiful picture of who God is as we go through our challenges of life. And yes, um, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien were, were Christians. My um, spiritual tradition, you know, comes out of Christianity. And uh, but there are so many wonderful um, spiritual and wisdom traditions, you know. Um, channels that that God reveals himself to us through so through all of these different expressions you know be it Buddhism or Islam or Christianity or um just just so many wonderful ways that that God reveals himself to different cultures all all over the world very 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 true i 8 years ago i read the quran cover to cover in an english translation mm. and it is a book of great beauty and power well, this is a wonderful little excerpt from C.S. Lewis, um, The Horse and His Boy, but it also just celebrates all, not only, um, I think, well, I'll just re- let it stand on its own, but also the, the uh, celebrates story. And so here, here's an uh, excerpt starts with, and being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing, and the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale. If the horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked everything on a breakaway and a wild gallop. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop. So he went on at a walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last he could bear it no longer. Who are you, he said, scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Oh, please, please go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fisherman, and then he told the story of his escape 
and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives, and all of their dangers in Tashban, and about his night among the tombs, and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey, and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Aravis, and also how long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you. There were at least two the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you might reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at night, to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. (laughs) I am telling you your story, not hers. There are so many different stories. Absolutely. And this is such a beautiful story. Um, example, I think, of the way that uh, C.S. Lewis wove the presence of God into his his stories, which were uh, mythological in nature, but also allegorical, which, you know, we will not get into. We won't uh, get into, into that what, right what, now. But. What <laughs> Tolkien thought about um, allegory. But um, these two were uh, dear, dear friends, and a great, I think, Many of the great gifts that each of them gave to us in their stories uh, probably would not have, maybe not have even come about, but certainly would not have had the richness had it not been for their uh, friendship. That's absolutely truth. We know, for instance, that uh, much of the early work of Lord of the Rings was read by Tolkien to Lewis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one of my favorite quotes about the Lord of the Rings as a work of, of fiction, as a work of mythology, is uh, Lewis's brief review, uh, which ends, Good Beyond Hope. Yes. Good Beyond Hope, which is certainly the nature of Lord of the Rings. Good Beyond Hope. So that was uh, Mythopoeia, which uh, is available in several different places. People can find that beautiful, beautiful poem. And uh, our desire here with this morning was just, you know, to bring a little aspect of the spiritual nature of the writings of J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And um, and I just love it because it, his work, J.R. Tolkien's work, reaches into so many areas. So many people have been inspired to art and to music. I mean, Howard Shore, you know, this beautiful music that he wrote for The Lord of the Rings, you know, was inspired by The Lord of the Rings, by J.R.R. Tolkien. We would have never had that music uh, were it not for uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and many others who have been inspired in art, you know, the beautiful, the movies who bring to life so much uh, 
so much beauty of things that I would have never been able to imagine. And uh, artists like Alan Lee, who illustrated many of the books, and our Ted Nath- Naismith, who has illustrated many, who illustrated the Silmarillion and many um, J.R.R. Tolkien calendars, and who also is a musician. So this morning I thought we would play a little song of his. Actually, um, there's a song called Leaving the Shire. Oh, you know, actually, Where Beauty Dwells. Which one do we want to hear this morning? Leaving the Shire or Where Beauty Dwells? Where Beauty Dwells is so lovely. It is. This album by Naismith, who is world famous as an illustrator of Tolkien, but less known as a musician, is really a lovely, lovely set of songs. Uh, remind me of the title of the album again, Tony. The Hidden Door. Song, the Hidden Door. Songs in the Key of Enchantment by Wonderful. Ted Smith. Excellent. So let's play this, and then we'll come back, and maybe we can muster up the, uh, the courage to share a couple of uh, uh, Tolkien-themed uh, Christmas carols. This is KUCI <laughs> in Irvine. You are listening to What Would Arwen Do? <laughs> With Tony Genevieve and Milo Lomesdown, and here is... Tedney Smith, Where Beauty Dwells. And that enchanting music of Tedney Smith. Where Beauty Dwells. So we just uh, have a few minutes here to wrap things up. But um, Milo, you wanted to share, uh, is this a a short essay? A very, very, very brief essay from 1957 by C.S. Lewis. It's reprinted in God in the Dock, Essays on Theology and Ethics. Mm -hmm. But this is What Christmas Means to Me by C.S. Lewis. Three things go by the name of Christmas. One is a religious festival. This is important and obligatory for Christians. But as it can be of no interest to anyone else, I shall naturally say no more about it here. The second, it has complex historical connections with the first, but we needn't go into them, is a popular holiday, an occasion for merrymaking and hospitality. If it were my business to have a view on this, I should say that I much approve of merrymaking. But what I approve of much more is everybody minding his own business. I see no reason why I should volunteer views as to how other people should spend their own money in their own leisure among their own friends. It is highly probable that they want my advice on such matters as little as I want theirs. But the third thing called Christmas is unfortunately everyone's business. I mean, of course, the commercial racket. The interchange of presents was a very small ingredient in the older English festivity. Mr. Pickwick took a cod with him to Dingley Dell. The reformed Scrooge ordered a turkey for his clerk. Lovers sent love gifts. Toys and fruit were given to children. But the idea that not only all friends but even all acquaintances should give one another presents, or at least send one another cards, is quite modern and has been forced upon us by the shopkeepers. Neither of these circumstances is in itself a reason for condemning it. I condemn it on the following grounds. 1. It gives on the whole much more pain than pleasure. You have only to stay over Christmas with a family who seriously try to keep it in its third or commercial aspect in order to see that the thing is a nightmare. (laughs) Long before December 25th, everyone is worn out, physically worn out by weeks of daily struggle in overcrowded shops, mentally worn out by the effort to remember all the right recipients and to think out suitable gifts for them. They are in no trim for merrymaking, much less, if they should want to, to take part in a religious act. They look far more as if there had been a long illness in the house. Second, 
Most of it is involuntary. The modern rule is that anyone can force you to give him a present by sending you a quite unprovoked present of his own. It is almost a blackmail. Who has not heard the wail of despair, and indeed of resentment, when at the last moment, just as everyone hoped that the nuisance was over for one more year, the unwanted gift from Mrs. Busy, whom we hardly remember, flops unwelcomed through the letterbox, and back to the dreadful shops one of us has to go? Third, Things are given as presents which no mortal ever bought for himself, gaudy and useless gadgets, novelties, because no one is ever fool enough to make their like before. Have we really no better use for materials and for human skill and time than to spend them on all this rubbish? And fourth and finally the nuisance, for after all, during the racket we still have all our ordinary and necessary shopping to do, and the racket trebles the lever, labor of it. We are told that the whole dreary business must go on because it is good for trade, it is, in fact, merely one annual symptom of that lunatic condition of our country, and indeed of the world, in which everyone lives by persuading everyone else to buy things. <laughs> I don't know the way out, but can it really be my duty to buy and receive masses of junk every winter just to help the shopkeepers? If the worst comes to the worst, I'd sooner give them money for nothing and write it off as a charity. For nothing? Why, better for nothing than for a nuisance. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, and he has such a wonderful sense of humor. And so uh, hopefully this Christmas, um, you know, it is it is challenging economic times for many. And so let our gifts be just our love for each other, our smiles, our spending time to each other, sharing good food, sharing experiences of the heart. Who cares about gifts? I mean, gifts are, gifts come in so many forms. There's the air that we breathe is a gift. The stars that shine on us at night. The moon that smiles down on us. The friendships and the families that we have. And my goodness, there are so many wonderful things to enjoy without having to have expensive and crazy gifts. And if you need to give gifts, mm -hmm. think about giving them to the poor, the defenseless, yes. the homeless, the needy. And be grateful. Um, I know I get I get such a thrill when someone sends me a card and says, I made a small donation to this charity or I planted a tree. You know, sometimes it could be as much as like $3 or $5. But I, I, you know, had a tree planted out of, you know, um, in remembrance of my love for you. And I'm like, oh, that's so much better than a sweater that I'll never wear. <laughs> <laughs> so we have here um, the Tolkien, 12 Tolkien Days of Christmas, which was co-wrote by a dear friend of mine, Ellen Gill, who is a friend of mine from the OneRing.com Torque, Tolkien Online. And I'm not sure if she is listening here this morning. I, I'm sure she's okay. Uh, originally, these there were three Christmas songs, and we sang them in line at the... Um, as we stayed up all night uh, to to see the midnight showing of the uh, premiere of the the two towers, and as we sat in line for twenty four hours, and as we came to that night, uh, I thought it would it was appropriate for us to have uh, some Christmas carols to sing to keep us happy and and having fun. So so we uh, these were these have been sung once before, but they were in line for the premiere of the two towers. So this is an. Um, I have to. You know, I, I guess I want to apologize for my voice, but it'll just be what it is. You've had some training. You have a great voice. <laughs> so this is Ellen Gill's and Falafiel's Twelve Tolkien Days of Christmas. So here we go. On the, the first day of Christmas, Tolkien gave to me the story of the ruling ring. On the second day of Christmas, Tolkien gave to me. Two trees of light and the story of the ruling ring. On the third day of Christmas, Tolkien gave to me three Silmarils, two trees of light and the story of the ruling ring. 
On the fourth day of Christmas, Tolkien gave to me four little hobbits, three silver rills, two trees of light, and the story of the ruling ring. On the fifth day of Christmas, Tolkien gave to me five mithril shirts, four little hobbits, three silver rills, two trees of light, and the story of the ruling ring. On the sixth day of Christmas, Tolkien gave to me six swords of swinging five mithril shirts. Four little hobbits, three silver rills, two trees of light, and the story of the ruling ring. On the seventh day of Christmas, Tolkien gave to me seven dwarves a delving, six swords a swinging, five mithril shirts. Four little hobbits, three silver rills, two trees of light, and the story of the ruling ring. On the eighth day of Christmas, Tolkien gave to me eight orcs complaining, seven dwarves a delving, six swords a swinging, five mithril shirts, four little hobbits, three silver rills, two trees of light, and the story of the ruling ring. On the ninth day of Christmas, Tolkien gave to me nine Nazgul running, eight orcs complaining, seven dwarves a delving, six swords a swinging, five mithril shirts, four little hobbits, three silver rills, two trees of light, and the story of the ruling ring. On the tenth day of Christmas, Tolkien gave to me. Ten ants a-marching, nine Nazgul running, eight orcs complaining, seven dwarves a-delving, six swords a-swinging, five mithril shirts, four little hobbits, three silver rills, two trees of light, and the story of the ruling ring. On the eleventh day of Christmas, Tolkien gave to me eleven elf lords sailing, ten and some marching, nine Nazgul running, eight orcs complaining, seven dwarves a delving, six swords a swinging, five mithril shirts, four little hobbits, three silver rills, two trees of light, and the story of the ruling ring. On the twelfth day of Christmas, Tolkien gave to me. Twelve men of Gondor, eleven elf lords sailing, ten in some marching, nine Nazgul running, eight orcs complaining, seven dwarves a delving, six swords a swinging, five mithril shirts, four little hobbits, three silver rills, two trees of light, and the story of the ruling ring. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Yay! That was Ellen Gill and Falafiel's 12 Tolkien Days of Christmas. And that is going to wrap up our time, my dear Hobbit friend. Well, Merry Christmas to all of our Christian friends. Happy Hanukkah to all of our Jewish friends. And may you have a blessed and fruitful new year in the prophet. Peace and blessings upon him in the New Year of the Muslim calendar, which starts today. Yes, and happy holidays and joyous greetings to everyone. Remember to go out there, give all your friends and those you love big hugs and a kiss right on the cheek. <laughs> but not on the mouth because we're still uh, battling the flu. I know, it's okay. But kisses are good. Kissing, kissing therapy is a wonderful thing. And hugging therapy is a wonderful thing. It may be the best gift of all. 
the hug, a, a hug from a friend, a hug from an acquaintance may be the best gift of all. So that is going to wrap up our time. We're going to have to say, uh, a star shines in the hour of our meeting. My Hobbit friend, you have a lovely holiday. And we'll be back in two weeks on uh, January 2nd. January I'm sorry, the January 1st. first the New first Year's day. day in yes. the Western calendar. That's yes. right. And we'll be, uh, which is very close to G.R. Tolkien's birthday. So we'll have some fun to, to have with welcoming in the New Year. That'll I look forward fun. to the New Year with you, Tani, my elf friend. We'll bring some non-alcoholic sparkling mirror of war and have a toast. There we are. <laughs> so uh, that's going to wrap it up. This is What Would Arwen Do on every other Friday morning. And alternating weeks with Phenomenal Women, I am Tani Tenuviel, the resident KUCI Middle Earth Elf, wishing you a very lovely holiday and hope to see you uh, next week. And with that, we're going to go out with a little song from the Prancing Pony Players uh, for Christmas, um, the Tolkien version of My Favorite Things, KUCI in Irvine, the best radio station in the history of Middle Earth. Wizards and parties and hobbits digesting, elf lords and councils and...